the War Nomads podcast. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous independent traveler. Welcome again to our podcast delivered by World Nomads, the travel insurance and lifestyle brand covering more than half a million travellers. It's nice to be with you in 2018. My name is Kim. And I'm Phil. And in Episode 7, we're exploring New Zealand. Yes. Now, New Zealand for Australians is a hop, skip and a jump away, literally a three to four hour flight for uh, from Sydney. But it's a much, much longer flight if you're travelling from Europe or the US. So for our listeners there, we had to really ask ourselves, didn't we, why New Zealand? You sounded like Carrie Bradshaw then. So I had to ask myself, why is New Zealand so far away? <laughs> why is it so far away, Phil? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, look, uh, a few things that come up. Uh, firstly, the South Island has been referred to as having Switzerland-like qualities. It's got fjords and mountains and what have you. Uh, nothing much there can kill you. Uh, no venomous snakes, no lethal spiders and no crocodiles like we have here in Australia. Napier has the biggest collection of Art Deco buildings in the world, along with South Beach in Miami, so very similar. And there are some of the most diverse environments on Earth, from beaches with black sand, some of them, by the way, and rainforests to mountains, lakes, glaciers, and they've even got a volcano. And it's not Australia. No. And with a land area the size of Great Britain, yet with only four and a half million people, you don't have to go far to find complete solitude in New Zealand. Actually, in this episode, we will chat to a World Nomads contributor who talks exactly about that, Phil, and what it's like to walk some of the most isolated spots in the world. We speak with Kate Malcolm from Dive Tutukaka, which is New Zealand's premier full-service dive charter operator. And New Zealand, of course, is home of the bungee, another reason to cross the world. And we're so thrilled to speak with one of the godfathers of Adrenaline and co-founder of AJ Hackett Bungee, Henry Van Ash. Plus Waylon, who set himself the challenge to bungee jump around the world. But in each World Nomads podcast, we kick off with Phil's quiz question. Plenty of mountains, peaks and bloody big hills in New Zealand. <laughs> Hasn't it got the biggest, in fact, I've walked it, the longest or steepest street in the world? Yes, it do, yes one of those, yes. Well, yeah, something yeah, like absolutely. that. Absolutely. Anyway, plenty of peaks in New Zealand. Many of them are over 3,000 metres high. Which ones? Name? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what, you want us to name them all? No, how many of them are over 3,000 metres? Okay. So that's a pretty tall mountain. How many have they got over 3,000 metres? The answer later on. Well, World Nomads commissioned Andy Magnus to write about Fiordland, which is one of the most dramatic and beautiful parts of New Zealand. And we've got Andy on the line now. Hi, Andy. Hey, guys. Is that a pretty accurate description, one of the most dramatic and beautiful parts of New Zealand? I would say yes. I'm a big fan of New Zealand in general. I think that there are many um, wonderful and beautiful parts of New Zealand, but I am partial to Fjordland, and and yeah, as far as pure wilderness goes, it really doesn't get much better. Uh, Fjordland, I take it it's, you know, great big rivers and steep-sided cliffs then? Yeah, it is. It's it's uh, New Zealand's largest national park, and it's it's a pretty remote place. So there are lots of rivers and steep-sided peaks, just like you mentioned, and alpine lakes and alpine scenery as well as you know, bush scenery and jungles, and it's 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 a pretty rugged place. So um, the thing about Fjordland is that um, much of it is very inaccessible unless um, you're really adventurous or have air or water support. So what is the best way then to explore it with all those options? Well, I mean, that's tricky. Obviously, a lot of it depends upon your um, 
your let's say adventuring um cred kind of uh, like how how capable are you on your own and that's one of the reasons why it's it's so unexplored um because if you venture off of the planned tourist activities um which we kind of talk a little bit about in in the the piece i wrote um then you need to have some uh, capabilities in terms of camping skills um you know, or what we call in, in New Zealand tramping, you know, tramping skills, um, and things like that. You basically have to be able to look out, look after yourself in the wilderness. Otherwise, um, Milford Road, Milford Cruises, um, Dusky Sound, and Doubtful Sound, those kind of planned, prepackaged things. But if you're keen, there's quite a bit of other stuff you can do out there. Yeah, well, you know, we're world nomads. We're pretty keen for that sort of stuff. We like getting off the beaten track. So I take it there's got to be a fair bit of uh, safety. You got, Like you say, you've got to be able to look after yourself, but there's safety concerns as well? There, there are, um, and I think that's the trickiest thing for for visitors um, coming to the area. And I know that, um, you know, from a management standpoint, the the Department of Conservation, which manages the park, their biggest concern, or one of their biggest concerns, is with visitor safety. And and truth be told, you know, we're, we're talking about 99% of tourists that come, all they're looking for is to look at the stunning beauty basically through a glass house. You know, you got a boat and you're looking through a pane of glass, you're on a bus, you're looking through a pane of glass. And that's what most people that come down here are happy with and what they want to take away. But um, for the world nomad demographic, um, if you want something else, um, the region, unfortunately, has a lot to offer those people, but it's not as simple to find those sorts of trips. Um, there's plenty of them, but you know, because the department is worried, if the wrong people go off track, if the wrong people do some of these hikes, then there's just going to be a lot more injuries and fatalities and issues like that. So it is, it is a pretty serious environment. So when you say pretty serious environment and there are obvious, obviously safety concerns, is that just because of how st- steep it is in parts or uh, how thick the, the bushland is or the jungle? I think you used that term earlier on in the chat. Yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's a combination of those things. For example, one, one, of the, um, one of my favourite hikes that I talked about in the piece I wrote was Gertrude Saddle. Um, now, Gertrude Saddle is one of these that has very accessible from a road end it's it's um easily done in a day um and so it is getting more popular but there are sections on gertrude saddle for example that go up some sheer rock slabs that um there's often a cable um that you can hold on to and and climb up um but for example if you went up there and then it started raining and you're going on your return trip um, even though there's a cable there, you know you're you're hand over handing your way down on a cable on wet rock slabs. And if you're just looking at this as a day hike and can't manage yourself in an alpine environment, then that's a significant risk. That's an example. When you're out in those places, obviously you're out there on your own. It's pretty rare to get a place in the world these days where you you're so isolated. It must be amazing. It, it is, and it did uh, it did take a little bit of of getting used to. I mean, I, I'm. I'm from the States, and I've done a lot of hiking and climbing and, and adventuring over there. Um, but one of the jobs I got when I first came to Tiana was working for the Department of Conservation or contracting with them um, to do pest control. And I would get dropped by helicopter at the top of these remote valleys on my own, like not with a partner, 
and spend the entire day walking down a remote valley on a very roughly cut track, um, rebating these these traps. And it, the first time I did it, man, I just, you know, crossing rivers up to my waist and not really having anybody telling me uh, this is going to be okay. I really had to draw on a lot of my wilderness experience to a level that I wasn't really thinking that I was going to have to um, just for this, this job. And there's a lot of people down here in Fjordland and in Southland who are just regular users of the wilderness. And so the, the level of skill from the locals is fairly high compared to anywhere I've ever been. Such a beautiful part of the world. And as Andy suggests, make like a Boy Scout and be prepared. We will have a link to his article in our show notes. But right now, time to check in with our world nomads. Uh, actually, the best thing for me about traveling is meet new people. And the main, f- the main thing for me to come to Australia, the first thing for me was to improve my English. Uh, I'm from Wales. And same, I would say, is meeting new people, uh, new experiences. Yeah, having a good time and enjoying life. I actually just got back from Japan about two weeks ago. And I'm about to head to the States in two weeks. Basically everything, because like you can meet all the new people and you can learn all of the things. And you can see all the new places and everything, so yeah. My favorite place was Queenstown. Queenstown, I did the bungee jumping there. And Lake Wanaka as well. I couldn't go skiing because I didn't have enough time, but it was really good times there. My best place, for sure. Now, Phil, you and I both like... I've, I've seen the photos of you just snorkeling. Yes, have love you, it. Have you gone deeper? No, but I'm I'm planning on getting my paddy certificate this summertime, I think. Really? I mean, I'm going to do it. I've been deeper once. Um, and it's a tough, it's t- a tough gig. So Kate, it's it's a different world down there. It is a different world, totally. <laughs> Kate Malcolm is from Dive Tutu Kaka, which is New Zealand's premier full service dive charter operator. Now they service the Poor Knights Island and they islands rather, and they reckon it's the best subtropical diving in the world. So, wet my appetite. Thought we should chat to Kate. Hey, Kate, how are you going? Kia ora, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very well. It is a different world, as Phil said, once once you're down there, um, not just sort of snorkelling on top of the water, isn't it? It is very different under the air. It's a completely different environment, and it's absolutely fantastic. It's, yeah, not like not like we live up here. <laughs> Okay, when I was uh, when I did this dive, I you obviously when you knew you have to practice. I couldn't get the breathing right, and I had a panic attack. Has that happened before? It, yeah, no, it's really common. There's a mammalian seal reflex, and the minute water hits your face, you have a, an unconscious mammalian reflex. You just want to uh, go like that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so when you put the mask on, and some people it, it covers your nose, and some people have real trouble just breathing through their mouth. But it's a matter of just getting used to it. In fact, I used to practice in the shower. And you can do that if they've got the water um, on your face and you breathe out through your mouth. Once you get used to it, it's perfectly fine. Some of the skills that you'll do for in your open water course um, are clearing a mask and a mask remove and replace, and you actually become quite comfortable. It's If you practice it and you're taught correctly, it's a really easy thing to do. Well, I did master that, but once I got underneath, Phil, I've actually got some video footage of this, actually. I was like a washing machine. I kept turning over. <laughs> <laughs> I, t- I tell you what, the astronauts 
train for anti-gravity in space underwater because it's very much zero gravity. You're kind of like spinning around and you have to get your buoyancy nailed too. That's tricky, but you can learn that skill as well. Okay, well, I'll see how I go on my second venture. Now, you make a call that you have diving worth crossing the world for. So what can a traveller, and, you know, New Zealand is a long way away from Europe and America, what can a traveller expect once they get to you? It definitely is diving um, worth crossing the world for. Jacques Cousteau rated it one of the top ten dive sites in the world. Um, I'm not going to argue with him. He's a legend. But one of the things that the poor knights have that you don't get anywhere else is an amazing current that comes down from um, the Coral Sea, and it's slightly warmer, and with it, it brings some subtropical species. So that means that it's um, temperate, Um, in New Zealand's marine environment and it's got that added factor of the current coming down from the tropics so that means that you're going to have a biodiversity that you don't normally get anywhere else it's often called the Galapagos of the South Pacific for that very reason so you'll have subtropical species you'll have um, temperate water species you'll have cooler water species you'll have a whole lot of fish there that you go oh I've seen that somewhere before and then it's in that environment and because it's volcanic in origin and that means it's made of rock, so there's um, arches and swim-throughs. It's not coral, it's um, kind of like an adventure labyrinth playground under there. And so the encrusting life is everywhere. So everywhere you look, there's a nook or a cranny that's got something different. We've got five different species of wrasse, five different species of moray eel, and they're living in the little crevasses, the little nooks and the little holes in the rocks there. You're always going to see something that's completely different from the tiny little nudie banks right up to the massive schooling fish that we have, Trevally, Mau Mau, Blue Mau Mau, Pink Mau Mau, um, right up to the bigger fish as well. And we have one and a half, two metre long kingfish and they swim in big packs. So it's a little bit of everything out there. And that's why we think it's diving worth crossing the world for because it's got something for everybody. You have marine biologists on staff and in a previous podcast we chatted about the amount of plastic that's polluting our oceans. What is it like in New Zealand and have you noticed any changes to the water or or fish species indeed? Um, We're very lucky at the Pornites because it's a complete marine reserve, 100% no take and has been for a number of years and that's one of the reasons why it's the best diving in New Zealand is that it is untouched, it's a pristine environment. We do occasionally see um, the odd bit of rubbish that comes into the Pornites. There's more of it along the coast and I can't, you know, I wish I could say that New Zealand doesn't have any plastic, it does. Um, We do have that kind of problem here. It's not as exacerbated in New Zealand as it is in other parts of the world but as divers we are the eyes under the water and we're very much about um and we have an initiative here in the Tidakaka Coast called um, Tidakaka Coast Plastic Free. So we have um, we don't use plastic tape on our bottles. We have caps. We don't have anything plastic on our boats. We use paper to wrap sandwiches and in the lunch bags. Every effort that you make minimises as much plastic as you can. And I think that you can't. You, you would be remiss to think that um, global stocks weren't declining in New Zealand because they're globally declining in the world. But we can make a difference in our own little backyard. And it would be remiss of me to say there's no plastic in New Zealand. There is but we can make the best of it in their own backyard. And this part of the coastline is actually extraordinarily pristine. Well, it sounds beautiful. And look, most of our listeners are from the Northern Hemisphere. So you would tell them that this is worth crossing the world for? I'm biased, obviously. But um, there's something really cool about this place. We have um, a word in Māori called Tūranga Waiwai, and that means uh, your place to stand. And there's something about the islands here that... um, 
touches people's souls. It's a beautiful place. It's pristine nature reserve and a marine reserve. And it definitely is my Tūranga Waiwai. It's my place to stand. Wow, what a beautiful way to end that chat and links to Dive Tutu Kaka in our show notes. Phil, where's your place to stand? Oh, look, I think it's uh, anywhere where there's surf. On the beach. I love standing over the coastline and looking at surf. That's I my, would absolutely that's agree with you. Still to come, the godfather of adrenaline, but now... And now, Ask Phil. A question this episode about New Zealand was posted by Millie, who asked, seven-day road trip in New Zealand in a camper van. Must-dos, places to see and eat. Well, Millie happens to be our editorial assistant here in the World Nomad headquarters in Sydney, so I've asked her to come in the studio. Hi, Mill. Great voice. How's the cold going? Oh, it's, it's getting there. It's been about a week now. <laughs> but, um, so hey, what? so how was the You know, what was some of the advice you got? Did you follow up on it? And then how good was the trip? Well, first of all, everyone was like, seven days, what the hell are you doing? You're yeah. never going to be able to fit anything in there. So we upped the time to 11 days. And we'd said that we were going to hire a wicked camper van. <gasps> yeah. Then yeah. we read the reviews and went, oh, hell no. Now, the so wicked ones are the ones with the, with all the writing over them. Yeah, they've got, like, graffiti yeah. on them yeah. and, and some slogans written on them. And they're actually a little bit too blue. Some of them, they're yeah. quite offensive. I mean, I've got kids, and you don't want, to, you don't want them to be reading those. They're, you know, now and there they, they are read. driving on the road. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, some other reviews are saying that some of the towns in New Zealand are just... Like they, they don't want them in there. Really? So we figured, let's go with a better van, which meant we had to up our budget. But uh, there was another guy who said on the forum that no, by no means should we hire a van, get a car and just stay in hostels along the way. It'll save heaps of money and everything. But the thing with that is, we did hire a van, by the way. We went with um, Brits and it was a massive, big action pod, oh, if I'd anyone wants to, to check it. it out. Yeah. And... Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't cheap, but we stayed in all three campsites. So um, um, you go to check out the Department of Conservation's website. Some of the campsites are maybe maximum $13 a night, but they are unreal. Have they got facilities or do you have to take a shovel? Well, I'm a bit of a shovel camper back here <laughs> yeah. in Australia, so that's nothing new for us. But no facilities in New Zealand is still a uh, drop toilet. Yeah. So their environmental, you know, friendliness and everything down there yep. is totally different to up here. Yeah, if it says basic facilities, it means basic. But that's better than paying, you know, yeah, twenty five dollars for a hostel. Just pay thirteen and sleep under the stars. Yeah, couldn't agree. Can more. I can I just explain? I don't know if this is an Australian thing. The the long drop toilet. This is like a composting toilet. So there is a a building on the top with a. Uh, toilet seat and what have you, but it's over a ruddy big hole. Yeah, <laughs> and they often smell. Sorry, oh, yeah, they do. They're not yeah. great. Yeah, but you know, but it's better than digging the hole yourself. I don't mind doing the shovel. I'm with Millie. Oh yeah, it doesn't worry me. Except I'm pretty quick of a morning, so I've got to be. I've got to be, I've got to be quick gonna, the shovel. We're going to have. We're going to have to put a language warning on this episode. Okay. <laughs> now the other thing I know about New Zealand is they they allow free camping as well. There are unless there's a sign saying no free camping allowed, you can. Camp just about anywhere you want? Yeah, so you'll see a sign when you roll into some of the towns and I think it'll either have a van or a tent and a red... Uh, yeah, the circle Yeah, the circle yeah. with the yep. no-go. And that means uh, no freedom camping. So you can't just park your van in front of any old place and sleep the night. Yep. You'll get asked to move along. doesn't matter if it's 4am, they'll tell you to get stuffed and really? go somewhere else. But... 
you drive 10 minutes out of town, you can freedom camp. Just pick your spots wisely. Yeah. Um, you know, the one thing that we saw when we were driving around was people, tourists, pulling over on the side of the road where it was dangerously, you know, close to a barrier, no room, already a one-lane sort of road between Queenstown and Glenorchy. Yep. Yeah. It's pretty, oh, pretty that dodgy. That is pretty dodgy, yep. Stopping for a great photo. But yeah. all I could think is hopefully no one stops there to camp because this freedom camping thing, I think people take it pretty loosely. Yeah, yeah. So, so, what it, so rate the tips that you got on Ask a Nomad. Did they help, help organise your trip? Oh, yeah. If it wasn't for them, we probably would have booked in the seven days and very quickly found out that's way too little time to squeeze everything in. What if you've got a travel question, Phil? What do you do? Uh, then you need to get on and ask a nomad. Go to answers.worldnomads.com. When I requested this interview, I wasn't convinced I'd get it, Phil. You know, asking to speak with one of the godfathers of adrenaline in the world and co-founder of AJ Hackett Bungie, Henry Van Ash. There were a few hoops to, to jump through, but to my delight, Henry said yes. And a conference call was set up and I went ahead and asked him, how did you get into Bungie? Well, I was skiing in Wanaka in the, uh, in the uh, late, in the, whatever it was, in the, the 80s. In the late 80s, I met AJ and he had a friend who had been sort of trying to work out how to do uh, jump with rubber for a couple of years and AJ did a jump with him in Auckland and he called me a couple of days later and said, you, you've got to come and do this, it's it's uh, it's amazing. So I flew up there and a week, week after he did his first jump, I, uh, I did one and we just sort of developed it from there really. We had groups of friends doing it and we refined the, the system to get to a point when, in 1988, we were able to open it to the uh, unsuspecting public. So can you explain then that logistical process where you, you took it from, you know, your idea to something that's commercial? Well, it was, it was a period of a trial, well, trials, I suppose you could call them, where... Uh, we found bridges and we set up the, the built the rubbers normally and the built the bungees normally uh, sort of on, on the sites and then we did some, some testing with weights so we'd throw a whole bunch of weights off and then once we were satisfied that everything was working perfectly uh, we would then put ourselves in you know, put ourselves and our, and our friends on it so that was sort of the first phase of it and then we probably did a bit of market testing I suppose in our Cooney and realised that it was that people were really excited about it and scared and scared and excited. And we then thought we needed to look for a permanent site. So we knew this about the Salt Bridge down here in Queenstown. Queenstown at that time had a, a pretty strong two-season uh, sort of uh, timetable where the, when the winter it was quite busy. The winters are a bit shorter without snowmaking, but it was busy in the winter. And then the summer was a, a strong destination as well. There was big gaps in the autumn and the spring. So we uh, thought that uh, Queenstown was the ideal place to do it, and I also wanted to move back into the mountains. So came down here in November of 1988. Uh, at that stage, we then had to apply to the, the people who owned the bridge, which is the Department of Conservation, which is New Zealand's um, sort of land, land form uh, managers in charge of animals and old historic structures and the like. And we managed to convince them to give us a 30-day licence to operate. And then we got it extended to three months and then six months and then five years. And then uh, before the five years was up, we got a 66-year lease on that site. So that was sort of the initial um, set-up phase, really. 
Sue, were you surprised by its popularity? Well, we already knew from Jumping With Friends that it was, that it was something uh, that people were, were scared and excited about. There's a lot, of, a lot of fear involved, which people, when they overcome it, feel elated. And beyond the elation, there's a really deep sense of satisfaction and achievement that people get where when they've done bungee and they have had all this fear leading up to it, they push through those barriers and then they find that they have got more confidence in their ability to make good decisions and more confidence in their ability to do things. So it is quite transformational, Bungie, and that's one of the things which is always sat in the background behind the sort of the glossy image or the the, 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 um, the danger, the extreme imagery that Bungie has sort of been associated with. Well, I've been to Queenstown three times, um, and each time I've gone to a bungee, twice to the bridge and once to the Nevis, and I've never done it. But there's this massive buy-in. You know, I sit there and watch everyone doing the bungee, and there could be somebody on the, the platform for 15 minutes, and the staff are just so patient. The people that are in the queue are so patient. And when the person finally does it, it's like the whole place just erupts with this massive, congratulations, you're a hero. Yeah, and that's, that is a really important thing for us is that we really work hard to get people to do it. We know that there's, there's a lot of fear involved and most people are scared. Um, and when they have done it, you know, they, are, they, are, they, are, they are a hero. And it's, AJ, although we have over the years done a lot of sort of one-off special, you know, not stunt jumps, but you know, things like the Eiffel Tower and out of helicopters and... Um, tandem jumps, you know, with celebrities and things like that. Really, for us, it's about taking bungee to every every man, to use an old phrase, but every person, and making it accessible and and providing a team and a mechanism and a and a recording system to 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 provide the proof that they they, they did it um, for anybody to be able to access. And that's always been fundamental to us: is that it's not about being a superhero it's not about being an extreme sports person it's just about being an ordinary person who can do extraordinary things definitely so why do you think people are attracted to adventure tourism well it has changed over the over the 30 years that, that i've been sort of uh, deeply involved with it but in new zealand people come here because it is a great country for adventure New Zealand, the people of New Zealand are great adventurers, right from Coupe and the, and the early, the, the first people to settle here, the Maoris, a, a thousand years ago were the, were the most adventurous voyages of all of their peoples from the Pacific. And they had a few goes of getting here and then eventually they got here and then they you know, went back to the Pacific and took a while for them to come back again. But the, the ones that did come here were the most adventurous. And then when the European waves came several hundred years later, they were adventurous people as well. They're often good with the sailors and explorers and sealers and whalers initially. And then pastoralists came and the farmers came and they had to deal with the elements. New Zealand is a great adventure tourism destination and probably the greatest in the world. And Phil, Henry used to bungee 10 to 15 times a day, by the way, but now it's about 20 times a year when his kids force him to do it to show off to their <laughs> mates. Coming up, Waylon Murphy, who knows both Henry and AJ Hackett very well as he has bungee jumped around the world. But first, let's get some travel news. Officials are predicting this is the year Hawaii will be knocked off its perch as the most popular holiday island in the world by 
Okinawa. Japan. That's right. Visits to the southern Japanese island jumped more than 10% last year. And if that trend continues, it will take Hawaii's crown of 8.8 million people visited uh, in Okinawa last year and only 8.9 visited Hawaii. So they're going to bump Ooh. them off the top of that one. Fueling this boom is tourism from China, Taiwan, South Korea and Japan. One more new destination to put on your travel list for 2018 – Saudi Arabia begins issuing tourist visas this this year. Are you sure? Yeah, absolutely. You could only go as an expat or as a worker before. Now they're issuing issuing tourist visas. Wow. And what is there to see? Well, how about the Farasan Islands, a favourite haunt of Jacques Cousteau? So the diving must be all right. Um, Madane Salah, the 2,000-year-old silent desert city with its magnificent tombs carved from the rock. It looks a bit like the, uh, you know, the Treasury Building in Jordan, but wow. they're just carved out of a single lump of rock. It's pretty spectacular. Gorgeous. And the empty quarter, as they call it, that vast expanse of you know, dunes and desert which constitute the largest sand sea planet on the earth. And... Also in news, the most Instagram places in the world for 2017. Can you get skin? No, you tell me. Okay. At number four was the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Yep, that'd yep. be there. Number three, Central Park, New York. Yep. Yeah. Number two, Times Square. I see heaps of those, especially New Year's Eve. I know. Uh, John Whitby just posted one the other day. It's a magnificent place to go. It's uh, first time I went to New York. A friend of mine, I caught up with him and he said, get on the subway here, get off at the next stop. It's like midnight walking through Times Square. Yeah. Sensational. Anyway, the number one Instagram place on the planet was da, 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 Disneyland in Anaheim, California. Mm. I'm, I, <laughs> what a letdown. <laughs> it was a letdown, wasn't it? It's not really a World Nomads adventure-seeking place, <laughs> is it? It's not. Speaking <laughs> of which, a reminder, you can follow World Nomads on Instagram with over 97,000 followers and really some truly amazing travel pics. None of Sleeping Beauty. Well, Phil, I was told this guy is a dude. He's a legend <laughs> and you must chat to him. Okay. It's Waylon. Welcome to the World Nomad Studio here in Sydney, Waylon. Thanks for having me. You're an Aussie guy. I am. But you're a mad adventurer. You could put it that way, yeah. In fact, yep. you have just bungeed around the world. Yes. So tell us yep. about that. When did you come up with this harebrained scheme? Uh, it was a Sunday afternoon last year. I was bored on a Sunday, so I decided I wanted to do something massive. I uh, started out as a weekend to Macau to jump the world's highest. Yeah. And it ended up being 10 weeks. So where did you yeah. go? Which countries? So where uh, were we? Started in New Zealand, in yep. Queenstown. Of course, uh, home of. Where it, uh, home of, where it all started, where yep. else to start a trip like this. Um, then went to England, France, Russia, China, Hong Kong, Macau, Singapore, Cairns. Russia? Yeah. One of the best jobs. It's, yeah. Do you like check out the equipment yourself before you do it? I mean, uh, you know, that's the first thing I'd be checking out. I have a very, very high level of trust in the AJ guys. Yeah. So whereabouts in Russia is it? Uh, Sochi. Oh, so right. Just on the road from the, the Winter Olympic site. And so what, so what are you jumping into? Um, it's in the middle of a canyon. It's yep. a purpose-built site yeah. purely for um, AJ. Yeah. Um, big, long pedestrian bridge, the longest in the world, I think it is. Um, right in the middle of it. 207 metres straight into a canyon over a river. Amazing. I, Amazing. What goes through your mind as you prepare yourself to jump? Um, at the moment, it's technique. Um, but, you know, you're standing on the ledge. Wait, no, wait, what? Technique? Isn't it just <laughs> falling? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it depends on the jump you're doing. But, okay, you know, go on. 100 and whatever it is, jumps. Swan dives get a bit, not boring, but... 
Yeah. You want something different. Um, you know, on the on the ledge, as I tell everyone, you've just got to turn off. Yep. Turn off and just jump and know that as soon as you get off that ledge, it's just that free fall feeling you can't you can't beat. So do you get nerves though? Absolutely. Each Absolutely. time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, as soon as that goes, I'll stop jumping. Really? Yeah. So there's an adrenaline rush there. Absolutely. So France, yeah. what did you jump off? I'm picturing the Eiffel Tower, but please tell me it's um, not like I, that. I wish, I wish um, that's an AJ Hackett himself exclusive. That one. Yeah. Um, no, in Normandy, um, off an old viaduct, out in the country, out in the tall countryside, French countryside. Yeah. Um, absolutely beautiful. Sixty-one meters. Oh, that's that. Okay, so the two hundred and seven meters is a long way then. So because oh, that was eighty six. So two hundred seven in Russia was the biggest one. Uh, no, Macau Tower is the biggest one. Two hundred twenty three meters. Oh, okay. Two hundred twenty three no. meters. meters. How do you even get up to that height to do the jump? Uh, in a very very quick lift. Really? Yeah. And it, yeah. are you just as nervous on a two hundred twenty seven meter jump as you are a sixty one meter jump? Depends on the jump. Yeah. Depends on the jump, but with all the jumps, they're all completely different. So it's a completely different feeling. Because that sounds like a Nancy jump compared it's, to what you normally yeah, do. Yeah, I mean, my... No, no, it was in Normandy, not Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was a French joke. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. That's just down the road. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it all depends on the jump. I was, I was saying before that the, the scariest jump that I've done so far is... Well, it's between Sochi on 69 metres yep. and Cairns at 50. Phil, from a travel insurance perspective, is someone like Whaling covered or do you have to make sure you check your policy? Yeah, it varies a bit because World Nomads, we cover people from, you know, 130 different countries and we've got like six different underwriters. So it will vary from underwriter to underwriter. But generally, bungee jumping, if you're doing it with a licensed operator, you're covered. But if you're not doing it with a licensed no, operator, no, 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 home, home bungee not covered. <laughs> <laughs> that's Why? unacceptable that's, risk. Yeah. That is recklessness. It's, so now, well, the beginning of bungee started with people uh, using it was tree vines, wasn't it? And they would they would actually in Vanuatu, yeah, yeah, in Vanuatu, yeah. and they would actually hit the ground. Have yeah. you ever any, had any kind of near misses like Absolutely that? Absolutely none. None. No, there's been bumps and there's been bruises, but that's just that's a that's a matter of the sport. So what's next yeah. then? That's a good question. Um, little little trips to NZ next year, um, but the next the next big thing. How do you top it? Somehow, I reckon Waylon will find a way to top it. Links to his website and Instagram too in our show notes. Well, we've reached the end of this episode and trust we have convinced you New Zealand is worth crossing the world for. Actually, one other interesting fact, it looks great from space. According to singing astronaut Chris Hadfield, who pinpointed the Marlborough region, good wine district as well, as one of the most attractive on the planet when he was orbiting. All right, the answer to your quiz question, Phil, that you asked at the top of the show. Plenty of mountains, peaks and bloody big hills in New Zealand. How many of them are over 3,000 metres high? I was kidding about naming them, but the answer is 26. 26? 26 of them over 3,000 metres, starting with Mount Cook at 3,724 metres, or that's 12,200 feet. That's beautiful, Mount Cook. And it's known locally as Eoraki. Actually, Eoraki has three peaks. Was that good? Or we could, we've fallen back into Iceland, right? <laughs> that didn't exactly roll All right, off Mount Cook, 
Mount, Mount Cook has three peaks, upper, middle and lower, which are all 100 metres higher than, uh, than the next highest peak in New Zealand, which is Mount Tasman. It's just that you made it sound like it was in Japan. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> Rocky! <laughs> and another reason to cross the world for New Zealand, you can follow in the footsteps of Sir Edmund Hillary without having to climb Everest because, of course, he climbed Mount Cook too. That's another great reason. That wraps up Episode 7. Subscribe, rate, share on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Contact us by emailing podcast at worldnomads.com. Next time you see us, we will be off in Germany. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries. 